John 17, 20 through 26. This is the word of Almighty God. And this is Jesus praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Pray with me, friends. Lord Jesus, it has been a joy to sing, especially singing of your birth this morning. As we enter this great season of celebrating, just that you came, that you, that you came as the fulfillment of God's promise. We are so grateful. And I pray, Lord, that as we spend our time together this morning, I pray that you will be magnified. I pray that you will help us to see the love and the grace and the goodness of the Savior and that you'll help our lives to be transformed, to magnify you in all that we are and all that we do. God, have mercy on people this day. Save souls this day. Change lives this day. We believe you can and we believe you will for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Amen. 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 He's got it over there. (laughs) So fun. Oh, the prayer of Jesus found in John 17 is beautiful. Haven't you guys thought this has been lovely to study over the past three weeks? And it's deep, and it's challenging, and it's theologically rich. And besides those qualities, this prayer is loving. Jesus prays for his relationship to the Father to be one of unifying, unified glory, right? Christ prays for his disciples, asking that the Father would protect them and sanctify them. And can you imagine this? Just think about it. Jesus is on his way to be arrested in the garden. He knows his time on earth is almost at an end. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed by a dear friend. Don't ever forget that. Judas was a real, Jesus really genuinely cared for Judas. He was about to suffer physical brutality beyond what we can imagine. And even worse, he was going to die bearing the punishment for God's wrath against the sins of others. But in all of this, Jesus takes time to pray for his disciples. I mean, if you're him, is that what you're focused on? Some of us, I mean, again, some of us, if we have anything wrong with us at all, assume the world should focus on us, right? Jesus took time to focus on his disciples. Now, here's what's beautiful this morning for you and me. 
Those 11 disciples, the 11 faithful that remained with Jesus after Judas walked away, they're not the only ones on Jesus' mind as he prays. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me just check real quick. How many of you here this morning are believers saved by grace in Jesus? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, right here, Jesus prayed for you. William Hendrickson wrote this. The eye of Jesus scans the centuries and presses to his loving heart all his true followers as if they had all been saved even at this very moment. So, the night he was betrayed, as the Lord Jesus walked toward his arrest, as he suffered the agony of knowing what lay before him, Jesus prayed, and he prayed for you. As we wrap up the prayer of Jesus, before he heads to the garden, we're going to try to see what we should do, or think, or feel, because of the text before us. Let's get into the passage. We'll find four points as we examine what we're going to call a prayer for unity. Four points as we talk about a prayer for unity. And, and then, Lord willing, how this is going to go, this will wrap us up in John for about a month. We're going to take some time off in the month of January. And then around February, we're going to get back into this gospel and we will walk the rest of the way with Jesus to the cross, through the empty tomb. And uh, it'll be glorious. So, point number one, share God's word. Point number one, Share God's word. That's a a lesson for us here. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We've had 19 verses of praying so far, and now Jesus says something wonderful. Again, like I said, it should grip every one of you who knows Jesus. He's not just praying for those 11 around him. He's not just praying for the men walking with him through the Jerusalem night. Jesus, he's praying for others, and specifically he says he's praying for the ones who are going to come to faith because of the words of the 11 disciples. Christians, Jesus prayed for you, and he prayed for me. And when Jesus says, referring here to the words of the disciples through which people will come to faith, no doubt he's meaning the future testimony of the disciples, right? Just a few weeks from now, Peter is going to stand up boldly in Jerusalem and he's going to testify to the resurrected Lord Jesus and thousands will come to faith. But after Peter's time, thousands upon thousands, upon hundreds of thousands, upon hundreds of thousands, millions are going to believe in the Lord Jesus because of something more significant than the speech Peter gave at Pentecost. The Lord has kept for you and me to have the words of the disciples that bring faith. The Lord has preserved them in the Bible, the word of Almighty God. So let me say something to us all right now that is a very important truth for Christians to grasp. All of us want people to come to know the Lord Jesus, right? We all want people to be saved. The way it happens, the way that people come to faith in Jesus, 
is through the power of God working through the word of God. People are saved when somebody presents to them the truth about Jesus as it is revealed in the Holy Scripture. When they present the truth revealed in Scripture, God opens people's hearts and those people believe. Nobody comes to faith because the witnessing Christian is such a good person. Nobody comes to faith because you are clever or are a better arguer than the guy next to you. Nobody comes to faith because you wrote something pithy on Facebook. Let me just ask you real quick because I'm feeling saucy this morning. (laughs) Have you ever had a major opinion about something deeply held that you changed because somebody put a meme on Facebook? Then stop thinking other people are going to do it when you do it. (sighs) Anyway. It doesn't do it, right? You don't go, oh, I'm going to change my entire worldview because somebody said something nasty to me on the internet. It doesn't work that way. Nobody comes to faith even because they see you do a right thing. People are saved when God, by God's power, convinces them of the truth of the things recorded in his holy word. Even if scripture's not being quoted, it's the truth of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that brings people to salvation. God's word has power. God's power to change lives. How do we know? Hebrews 4.12 says to us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In 2 Timothy 3.14 and 15, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture has power. Psalm 19, 7 and 8 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. If it's true that Jesus prays for those who will come to faith because of the word of the disciples, and if it's true that we now carry that word in the Holy Bible, And if it is true that the Bible, as the word of God, has soul-changing power, and if it is true that we want people to be saved, one thing should be obvious for us to do. As believers in Jesus, we should be sure to help others to come to know Jesus by presenting them with the truth of God's holy word. We should share Jesus not with gimmicks, not with clever tricks. I mean, we, had, we were so busy this morning, Ben didn't even hook up the smoke machine. Why don't we need one of those? 
Because it ain't about that, friends. It's not about, it's not about good music. It's not about pithy, clever sayings or a nice-looking room. Why do people come here? Why do people come to faith? It's not because of gimmicks. It's not because of tricks. It's because we share Jesus by sharing the truth of God found in the Word of God. Can I encourage you, Christians, to make it a priority to know how to share the gospel with others from the Word of God? Even if it's a super simple presentation, by the way, maybe it's just a few verses that you memorize. Maybe it's just a few references you memorize that you can use the Word to help people see their truth, the truth of their need for Jesus. That's worth having in your brain, don't you think? So, what are some ways to do it? I put some online yesterday, my pithy stuff on Facebook. God is holy. How do we know? Revelation 4.8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If we know that, that's a good starting point, right? Mankind is sinful. Where would you look in the Bible to tell people man is sinful? Give me a reference. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right. Our sin earns us death. Where would you look to find that? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died to pay for our sins. Jesus' perfection is for our righteousness. Christ died and rose again for our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You should know this one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a good verse, isn't it? Doesn't that just give you the gospel? Okay, try this one. Believe in Jesus to be saved. What verse would you use to tell somebody that one? I think that's a good one, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you get if you could just share those things with somebody, you've given them the gospel? Now you say, but Travis, you haven't unpacked the depth of the Trinity. <laughs> no, I haven't. And when you were saved, you couldn't either. Right? Christians, Let's help others to believe. Let's join God in the task, even though God does all the work. Let's help others to believe by sharing God's word. Amen? All right, point number two. Live in genuine Christian unity. Live in genuine Christian unity. What we just did was almost a side point. Let's get into the meat here. Jesus said, he prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. 
So here we get to the prayer request. We know Jesus is praying for the people who are going to believe based on the word of God as delivered by the apostles, which we have in scripture. But what is it Jesus wants for you and for me? Because this is Jesus praying for you, Christian. Jesus prays that we may be one. It's funny, that sounds simple, but it's a little complicated. But we're going to try to unpack it here today. Whatever it means, here's what we know for sure. The illustration of the oneness that you and I are to live out is depicted in the unity of the Holy Trinity. God is one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is a perfect illustration of oneness. But the oneness that we are to experience, Christians, is also supposed to communicate something to the world. So before we say what this is, how about we say a couple things it is not? A couple things it can't be. The oneness we are to experience is not an ontological oneness. Some of you are thinking I'm becoming a nerd all of a sudden because I just used a big word, right? <laughs> ontological means the essential nature of a thing. It's the essential being of a thing. It's what it really is deep down. Jesus is not saying, I want these people to become so much one in their very being that they stop being individuals. Your ontology does not change. Your essence, your being doesn't change. Yes, the nature of God is to be triune, one God in three persons, but we're not going to change in our nature so that we become essentially united in exactly the same way the persons of the Trinity are united. That doesn't work. But the oneness Christ prays for us is illustrated by the Trinity. So there's a real closeness, there's a real interrelationship that's supposed to be part of what we are. But let's go on. Besides the fact that it's not going to be changing us in our essential being, the oneness Jesus prays that you and I would have is not, please pay attention to this, not a oneness without theology. Many people, many churches out there would say that this prayer right here of Jesus condemns denominationalism. Have you guys ever heard this taught where someone's like, this is why we shouldn't have denominations. He wants us to be one. They say Jesus wants us all to be one, so we should just lay aside the things about which we differ. Some people use these verses as a club to demand that Christians just ignore doctrine for the sake of a supposed unity. The problem here is that Jesus is not calling for a oneness that is disconnected from the word of God. He already said in verse 20, those for whom he's praying are the ones who have come to believe in him because of his word transmitted through the apostles. Therefore, Jesus is not calling for any kind of unity that is separated from the word of God. There is no Christian unity apart from the Bible rightly studied and applied. Hendrickson, again, I quote him twice today, writes this. Believers, therefore, should always yearn for peace, but never for peace at expense of the truth. 
For unity which has been gained by means of such a sacrifice is not worthy of the name. Third thing that we can say Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying a solely figurative spiritual unity. Yes, Christ wants us to be united to God in the bonds of a spiritual family, but he's got more in mind here. Jesus prays that the oneness that we experience would be a testimony to the watching world around us. So something more than a oneness that is seen in heaven is at the heart of what Jesus is praying for. He wants us to be one in such a way that it gets people's attention in the here and now. Earlier this evening, in the upper room, Jesus commanded his disciples to develop a love that would get the world's attention, right? Remember that one, John 13, 34, 35? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Something about Christian love, something about true unity will convince the world that we truly follow Jesus. That's a whole lot more than a pretend unity. It's a whole lot more than some figurative unity of empty words alone. A supposedly spiritual unity that does not come out in your life will not stand out to the world. So that ain't what's in view here. So what is the oneness that Jesus prays for you? What is the oneness Jesus wants us to have? Yes, it is a spiritual oneness that can be seen. It is a unity in which the people of God display to the world that all of us have a personal connection because we have a personal relationship with the God who made us. Let's go to the promise of the new covenant. And I want you to listen to this language with unity in mind, with oneness in mind. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is familiar. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with them, or with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Now, here's what I want you to pay attention. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Something about the unity represented in, in the new covenant promise is a kind of unity that will get the world's attention. Because Jesus said he's going to connect those who have faith in him with God. The Lord is going to make us part of God's family. So here's what you need to get with that. Christianity 
following Jesus will not be a religion made up of those who know God and those who don't know God. Instead, Christianity, genuine Christianity, will be a collection of people who all are truly trusting in and knowing God. And you might say, Travis, that was obvious. How many of you were thinking that was obvious? I'm glad you admitted it. I think Ben was thinking it. He just didn't say it. But don't forget, it would have sounded wild to the people of the first century. Think about national Israel for a second. Think about the nation. There were people in that nation but who didn't believe in or follow God, right? They were still Israelites. They just didn't believe in God. They didn't follow God. They might have even played around with the religion of the land and they still didn't know God. Today, even though that thing sounded so obvious that Christians know Jesus, today, plenty of people will tell you that they've got a religion but if you ask them about their faith, they will say, oh, I'm non-practicing. <laughs> but listen to me, guys. The unity with God and with one another that's in the new covenant is not open to the concept of a person being in the covenant but not a full-blown child of God. All in the covenant know God from the least of them to the greatest of them. All are united in God's family. That's a oneness. Another thing that the unity that we're supposed to have has to entail is a unity that is so unlikely that it amazes the world. Listen to Paul in Galatians 3, 26 to 29, and think about how this would get the world's attention. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to promise. That unity for which Jesus prays is something that would totally blow the mind of the world if they saw it in us. What does the world we live in do? Think about this, friends. Just, just you and me talking here. The world separates people based on their ethnicity. It separates people based on their position in life. The world divides people up today. In fact, the world is deeply, passionately committed around us to dividing people up and setting them against each other as the powerful versus the powerless, as the oppressor and the oppressed, as the strong as, as, as compared or opposed to the victim. Is that not what you hear all the time in our world today? Structures of power, positions of power. When the world thinks along lines like that, unity is absolutely impossible. 
You cannot buy in to such a divisive worldview and have unity. In Jesus' day, there were strong social divisions between men and women, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, servants and masters. But what does the Bible tell us? In Christ, whether people had formally wronged one another, whether they were strong or they were the weak ones in the relationship, in Christ, all of these people come together at once. They drop their social differences and in union they worship the one true God. Let me give you another one. A kind of unity that blows the mind of the world. How many of you remember the name Jim Elliot? Okay. January 8th, 1956. Jim Elliot, age 28 and a team of four other missionaries, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Udirian, Ed McCulley, were murdered. They were speared to death on a sandbar in Ecuador as they tried to take the gospel to the Wairani, an unreached tribe that lived in the Ecuadorian jungle. They found just enough space on a sandbar to land a little plane to try to reach out to people and because of both their, the people's worldview and some confusion, they took their spears and their machetes and they killed all five missionaries. Some of you have heard Jim Elliot's quote, right? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's pretty good. But if you know the story of the tragic death of those missionaries, you better remember what happened next. After the five men were murdered, some of their relatives, including Elizabeth Elliot, who was Jim's wife, Rachel Saint, who was Nate Saint's sister, they continued to take the gospel into the Ecuadorian jungle. And they preached to people who preached to people, and the gospel actually arrived at the very tribe that had murdered these ladies' kin. And the gospel made an impact on the Hawaiiani. And many of the people in that tribe were saved. Now here's what gets my attention. Here's what I want you to get. Because right now, this is the familiar part of the story. But what about a young man named Steve Saint? Steve was five years old when his father, Nate, flew the airplane that took the missionaries to that sandbar. And Nate Saint died on that sandbar in that river when his son Steve was only five. Steve's aunt Rachel is the woman, the sister of Nate. She kept sharing the gospel in the jungle. And even young Steve would go visit his aunt from time to time. When he was 14 years old, Steve was baptized. And here's what gets me every time. When Steve Saint was baptized, standing in the water with him were men who had cast the spears that took Nate Saint's life. Minkaye was one of the men who killed the missionaries. He believed in Jesus. He became the tribe's pastor. 
Minkaye baptized young Steve Saint. And for all of the rest of his life, Steve would see Minkaye as, as his family. He called him grandfather. Something about the gospel made it so that Steve could not only forgive the men who had robbed him of his father, but also he could declare for decades to come he loved them as his own brothers in Christ. That kind of unity, the unity that would allow former enemies to worship the Lord God together, that only comes from Jesus. And when the world sees love and forgiveness and God focus like that, they take notice. And when the world sees people who are supposed to be different, who are supposed to be at odds, who are supposed to see each other with this sort of division and divisiveness, but we come together, love one another, forgive one another, worship Jesus together, it gets their attention. Speaking of forgiveness, that's got to be part of genuine unity and it will get the world's attention. It will glorify Christ. There's a lot of churches in which people who call themselves Christian are unwilling to let go of even the slightest offenses. But y'all, if we're going to be unified like Jesus commands and as the Savior prayed, we have to recognize there is no room for petty grudge-holding and bitter-spiritedness among us in the body of Christ. We have to learn to be reconciled to one another. Let me tell you something about me. On occasion, on occasion, I will offend you. I will hurt your feelings. I will most certainly disappoint you. I won't do it on purpose, but I will do it. You know why? Because I'm still human. I'm still battling sin. And Jesus has not yet seen fit to snap me perfect. And can I tell you this? On occasion, you will sin against one another. You will offend one another. You will slight one another. You will get on each other's nerves. I know stories about you. I know of some of you. A conversation happens, you mishear the conversation and just blow up being offended. How dare someone do this? And then someone says, that's not what they said. And you had to go, oh. And maybe, just maybe, you did harm to our relationship because you blew up with a big old attitude. And maybe you're the one who's offended that someone blew up at you with the big old attitude. There is no place for holding on to garbage like that in the church. In fact, what's going to glorify Christ most is when after we hurt one another, after we offend one another, we learn to repent and seek forgiveness and we learn to forgive and find reconciliation. And listen to me carefully, this is brutal. If you are unwilling to be a forgiving kind of person, 
to try to be forgiving, to try to be reconciled, to try to extend forgiveness to those who would repent. If you are unwilling to be that kind of person, especially in the church, you'd better be concerned as to whether or not you are a genuine believer at all. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If Jesus prayed for true unity for the church, we want to live that unity together. Amen? How do we do it? Well, first, these are like subpoints. I didn't plan for them to be subpoints, but they are, Terry. First, know God. Right? Let's just start there. There is unity in being saved by grace through faith in Christ. Amen? Know the gospel, love the gospel. Know that everybody who has come to Jesus in faith is forgiven. Not because of our goodness, but because of the perfect finished work of Jesus. Rest in Christ. Rejoice in the fact that everything you need for life with God has been provided in Jesus. And be transformed by the good news of the Savior. Right? That's a good place to start, wouldn't you agree? Now, I want you to pause and I want you to hang on to that. Don't glaze over at the gospel. Some of you do that. Some of you hear me present the gospel and like, oh, that's the gospel again. I'll wait until he tells me something new to do. Cut that out. Don't look for new rules and commands here. The Christian life is grace from top to bottom. Christ has done everything that's ever going to make us right with God and Christ is the only one who can make us right with God. You cannot add to the work of Jesus. The gospel is not a claim that Jesus gets you started and you finish the work. The gospel is that Jesus did it all. And now we do want to obey Christ, but not to earn something, not out of fear that we're going to be in trouble if we fail. We obey because God has changed us and we want now to do what honors him really want you to have that in place before we talk about any other things to think about. But second, to have the unity for which Christ prayed, we want to know the word of God and study it well. This will allow us to be united around the common teaching of God as he gave it to his apostles. We don't turn away from biblical doctrine. We don't turn away from discussions of hard issues and we don't stretch out our theology in order to, well, let's get more people in by pretending to believe more than the Bible says. Let's make the Bible our standard, our final authority. We study, we pray, we discuss together and we come to conclusions that honor God and unite us under that word. That's who we're supposed to be. Third, Live out the unity that Jesus prayed for us as we learn to love, accept, and forgive one another. We got people who are more wealthy in this church. We got people who are less wealthy in this church. I think we all know who we are. We got people who are more educated from schools and more educated from living real life. We've got people who are older and people who are younger. We got people who are healthier. We got people who are sicker. We have people who are different. Some of y'all are really different. (laughs) If we're going to live out what Jesus wanted, we need to learn how to get past any social differences 
and just love the heck out of one another. We've got to learn how to reach out to people who are different than we are. If all you do in the church is try to find somebody who's just like you to be your buddy, you're not doing your job. You're supposed to be embracing people who are different than you. We need to be eager to welcome people who look different than us, who sound different than us. We need to love and accept people of all ethnicities, of all backgrounds, and listen to me here, we need to accept and love people, if they have Jesus, from all pasts and all walks of life. That kind of unity will absolutely get the world's attention and it will honor God. We better keep going here. Point number three, glorify Jesus. Glorify Jesus. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's so big. This is the last request in the prayer. Jesus prays something that is, it's an echo of what he prayed at the beginning. If you look up at at verse one of of John 17, right? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Jesus' mission is about the glory of God. Heaven is about the glory of God. Everything God does is about the glory of God. The single most important thing in all of eternity is the glory of God. The only way you're ever going to really be happy is when you experience the glory of God. So Jesus prays that you be with him and that you experience his glory And it's the glory that he had with his father from before time began. Now, we could take a lot of time on this topic, but we've we've kind of looked at it already a little bit. And so I just want to use this as a reminder piece. You exist, created by God, in order to give God glory. That's why you exist as a human being. Your life will be full when you do and what you think is focused on the glory of God. Whenever you are less focused on the glory of God, your soul is less satisfied. When you are more focused on the the glory of God, your soul is more complete, more satisfied, more filled. So what you want to do is center your life on the glory of God and you will find soul happiness, soul joy, Find the purpose of your life in the glory of Christ. And again, I'm not telling you glorify God so that you can get in good with God. The only thing that makes you right with God is the gospel of grace. This is all about how do you live fulfilled once you have the grace that God gives you in Christ. Fourth point, last point. Still with me for one more? Make God's name known. Point number four, make God's name known. Look at how Jesus ends this prayer. 
Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is walking to the cross. He faces a horrible death and an unimaginable spiritual suffering. Yet in the middle of all of this, he finds a great point of satisfaction. Jesus says, look, even though the world doesn't know you, Father, I've got reason for joy. Why? I rejoice that I know you. And I rejoice that these have come to know you through me. And I'm going to continue to help them to know you so that all of our joy may be complete. As Jesus walks toward the cross, he thinks about you, Christian. He thinks about me. And he finds it good that he's made God's name known. He made God known to the apostles and the apostles wrote down at God's inspiration the scriptures and the scriptures were used by men and women throughout the centuries to help people come to know Jesus. And if you sit here this morning and if you're a believer, you are one to whom Jesus has made God known. And if we have love for Jesus and if we have love for the lost, we will make it our mission to continue to make Jesus known just as Jesus made God known to us. Remember, there's a focus here on the glory of Christ. Jesus wants to make God known so that other people out there can have the joy of experiencing the glory of God. We want others to have that joy too. We want others, we want God to have that glory and and, and others to get that joy. So let's join with Jesus and let's make a commitment even now to make it our lives mission to make God known. I like this last section of the prayer. How about y'all? This prayer for unity. Jesus wants us to be one. Christians, let's be unified. He wants us to behold his glory. Christians, focus on the glory of Jesus. He rejoices that he's made his name known to us. Christians, join with him in making his name known to others. And if you hear my voice and you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you, come to know Jesus. If you've never been forgiven by seeking grace in Jesus, you are not yet unified with God. You're separated from God. You're in danger of suffering the wrath of God. But he promises he will forgive anybody who comes to Jesus in faith, believing that Jesus totally paid for our sins and rose from the grave. It's only by coming to Jesus that you're ever going to experience the joy God has for you, the joy of beholding and rejoicing his perfection. So I ask you, I invite you, come to Jesus today. Believe in Jesus today and find your heart's joy in the overwhelming glory of God. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, there's such good stuff here. I just plead with you now. Help us. Help us to be unified. Help us to rejoice in your glory. Help us to find joy in your presence. Help us to magnify you in all that we do. If there's anything in us that would be a hindrance to unity, I pray that you'll put it away. Where we are quick to judge others or be harsh with others, 
where we're quick to be mean-spirited or selfish or quick to believe the worst about others. Help us to let that go. Help us to be the church you want us to be, unified, glorifying, evangelistic, just the sweetest, most gracious church that anyone's ever seen. God, forgive us our weaknesses. Strengthen us that we might magnify you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.